Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. These things are holistic, like that there is always this interplay between the choices that you make about the thing you're building and then how people will use it and what you didn't expect and what you have to check back in with. That is actually not at all the way that we design software. We are kind of at the moment as a culture all about disruption. And usually if you don't like something, you don't fix that thing, you start again. Those are the wise words of Ellen Broad. Ellen is a senior fellow at the 3A Institute at ANU. A short bit of housekeeping and we'll get right back to Ellen. Before we kick off today, I just want to express my gratitude to you, our listeners. Thank you for tuning in each week and supporting Humans of Purpose as we close in on 150 happy episodes. I'm especially grateful to those of you who have chosen to actively support the podcast by becoming Patreon supporters. On that note, I'm pleased to welcome Tanvir as our newest Patreon supporter who joined us this week. Great to have you with us, Tanvir. A big thank you also goes out to our Patreon supporter family, including Lucia, Judy, Jules, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. Thank you, guys. You make it all worthwhile. If you want to join our Patreon community and support the growth of Humans of Purpose, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. Today, I'm talking to Ellen Broad, Senior Fellow at the 3A Institute out of ANU. Firstly, a big thank you to former guest and friend, Kate Glazebrook, who introduced me to Ellen. Ellen just happened to be down in Melbourne, taking some time away from the intense bushfire smoke plaguing Canberra, and was able to drop in to record this episode. She's doing some amazing work on the intersection between human behaviour, digital ethics, and AI, and the profound consequences that current and emerging technology will have on our lives. Thinking about what principles govern good design for the digital ecosystem that we find ourselves increasingly living in. Ellen was previously head of policy at the Open Data Institute in the UK, has worked at CSIRO's Data61, and has consulted to an impressive range of organisations and government departments. She's also an author, board game designer, and a pop music enthusiast. I really enjoyed my conversation with Ellen, and I'm certain you will too. Ellen, thanks so much for coming. Great to be with you, albeit a couple of weeks earlier than we planned. No, thank you for having me as a climate a refugee. A climate refugee, indeed. Well, we were going to jump straight to the heavy stuff, but um, maybe let's start and hear a little bit about your journey into the space, because I think you've done some incredible things. You're living very much what I consider to be a portfolio career, mm-hmm. a very creative career. Um, maybe take me back um, to the beginning whenever you feel comfortable and lead me into where you're up to today. Sure. So, I grew up in Perth in Western Australia. I uh, When I finished high school, I enrolled in a law arts degree at the University of Western Australia in very much that situation that I think a lot of um, 17, 18-year-olds have when they finish high school. I don't quite know what I'm supposed to do, but everybody tells me if I have the marks, I should do a law degree. Yep. So Been there. Yes. So I uh, did a double degree. I took a very long time to do it. I did it over six years and I took a year off halfway through to go and live in Paris for a year and earn very little money and eat a lot of frozen food. Lots of baguettes? Uh, A lot of baguettes. You should have seen my mother's face when I came back on a family trip. I mean, she's someone that doesn't really care about the way she looks, but clearly the change had been significant. Um, 
Yeah, I've never eaten that much food again. Mum's going to be the best mirror sometimes. And my mother doesn't have a filter. It's kind of whatever she's thinking is written across her face. So when I stepped (laughs) off the plane, there was just this silent stare. Anyway. So the bread was good. No, it was. was, And actually, I I worked in a jazz cafe next to a bakery where one of my jobs every time I got to work was to go and get the baguettes from the bakery and bring them back. So, of course, I would always, A, buy one for myself on the journey, but then eat the baguette at work. So I had a real love affair with bread whilst I was living in France. Anyway, um, so by the time I finally finished my degree, I thought I would be going into law. But when I applied for all of the graduate positions, as you do when you finish your law degree, I got rejected for every single one. So in the end, I moved to Canberra because that's where my uh, boyfriend at the time and now my husband, he had just been given a graduate position with one of the federal government departments. So I moved to Canberra thinking, well, I'll just pick up a job, any job, and eventually work my way back into a job I care about. And so I happened to pick up a job running the Australian Digital Alliance, which was a technology policy nonprofit. And that was actually an amazing first job because it was a, such a small nonprofit. I could really do whatever I wanted. There were no, and I don't mean that in terms of I could just go rogue and decide on what our strategy should be. I had a board, I reported to the board, but that there was no internal hierarchies that would have prevented me from trying new things. So I prepared a high court amicus submission for us. I appeared before the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties. I was traveling internationally. I was speaking at lots of events. And this was all when I was 22, 23. Um, And that just kind of set me up to then leapfrog into all of these different roles. So I um, was headhunted to move to the Netherlands and manage digital projects and policy for an international nonprofit based there. Uh, Then I decided I wanted to get more into the kind of technical side of things because now this had been about three or four years doing technology policy. And what I felt quite uncomfortable about was talking about technology that I might not necessarily understand. Mm. So I joined the Open Data Institute in London, which was established by Sir Tim Berners-Lee. Inventor of the World Wide Web. Yes, and Sir Nigel Shadbolt, who's one of the world's leaders in artificial intelligence. And so that was a much more um, technically focused organisation. Even though I was going in in a policy role, I was the sole policy person and they had a labs team, a services team doing consulting. My boss, Jenny, uh, was their head of technology Um, and I, through that work became more and more technically literate. Is that intimidating or like interesting working with, or was Tim sort of around and you're kind of working alongside the inventor of the internet? So Tim, as one of the chairs, he was a co-chair, he would be in the office for board meetings and then usually when he was in London to work. So he didn't uh, get involved in the day-to-day running of the Open Data Institute, but he would always be, you would kind of see him around and interact with him at board meetings. And if there was something that I learnt from interacting with Sir Tim and um, watching him in uh, ODI situations is that he has just not changed at all in the, what, 27 years since the creation of the World Wide Web and the ethos that informed his just releasing that to everyone 
is the exact same person he is today. Like he is completely uh, uninterested in the trappings of fame that that has brought him. You would see him in the office just working away quietly on projects that he was interested in. And so that was really inspirational. That's so exactly what I wanted to hear. Like I can just rest now. That's that's very calming. He is really um, exactly as you expect. Um, so anyway, so yes, ODI, and then so I just became more technical after that. I built really good relationships with the labs team. Ended up working for a UK minister as her advisor on data. Then came back to Australia as a consultant, led a technical project within Data61 and did some consulting for them as well and then joined um, the Australian National University where I work with Genevieve Bell at the 3A Institute. So it's been a very um, – uh, I just made this big hand mountain signal <laughs> for those of you listening. Yeah, I realised nobody could see what I was doing. But um, it's, it's just like been a, a – looks like a wave. Waves, some turns. It yeah. just hasn't been a straight line. It's like a sure. sonar kind of wave yeah. radar situation. So it sounds like you cornered the area or you discovered the area that you loved so much and have thrived in quite early on, which is quite um, unique in a way. You know, 22 and probably didn't expect to fall in love and go so deep in data, did you? No. And actually, I don't even think – I sometimes wonder if it would even have been data or if it could have been anything. What I became very passionate about was this uh, idea that there was a topic that I didn't quite understand and was relatively new in general. There is not hundreds of years of literature around computer science mm. and the World Wide Web and artificial intelligence. Um, we can, you know, hark back to folk tales and literature and kind of historical references, but actually it's been, what, just over a 100 years since the kind of birth of the modern computer. Mm. So I think perhaps that first job at the Australian Digital Alliance, it, I can assure you that I had absolutely no interest in technology and no interest in computers, and if you had said to me, you know, three months before taking that job that in, you know, what, 12 years time, 13 years time, I'd be even deeper into the subject area. It would have been just extremely strange to me. Well, I think there's something um, that I quite like about the idea of bringing a beginner's mind to an area. Mm -hmm. So you see things very differently. And just, just before we were kind of chatting a bit about how um, with certain fields, it can be a bit black and white. There's a, there's a literature, there's the established science and there's the established practice. But with data science and computers, um, to come to a new area without knowing everything might have been a very valuable way to really kind of learn it. Yes, I think it was a really valuable way to learn it. And I think one of the characteristics of my career so far has been that I haven't really stuck in any area for longer than a couple of years because even rotating around that topic of data, I've done policy, standards, uh, architecture, analytics, um, change transformation, and never and, and with each role, it's been about filling a gap that I felt in the previous role. But it means that I never have enough time to feel as though I'm an expert in anything. 
So perhaps that makes it a more there's a constant beginner's mindset because I never learn enough about a topic to um, feel as though I don't need to move on again. But um, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit because I think a lot lot of people would regard you as an expert in many facets of the the work that you've done. Um, Certainly uh, AI, which you've written a book on, um, data sharing, ethics, um, security. So it's sort of like you know, data is not really an area. It's more like just this mammoth thing and there are so many different ways to approach it maybe. Yeah, I think I keep um, peeling away bits of it from different perspectives and careers as in, um, you know, if, if you kind of take apart this concept that is data, there are so many different skill sets and roles and purposes built into making sense of it. You have everything from your statisticians to your machine learning researchers, your user experience designers, your policymakers. And I feel as though a lot of my time has been spent watching other people in their roles in this area and then thinking, oh, I really want to learn that. So you let that guide you a bit in terms of what you do next? Yes. I quite often, I quite often will find myself thinking, okay, well, if I want to um, change this aspect of the data ecosystem, I will need to do it from this audience. So if I'm going to change the way software is designed to um, change the way we collect data about individuals, for example, I will need to be in charge of a team designing the software. I will not be able to affect that change from a policy or a user experience um, position. So I think quite often, and I've never really, I think, articulated it explicitly like this, but I do think quite often my motivations in terms of where I move next are I saw that this was the center of influence in this particular challenge and I want to be able to be part of that um, area yeah. of influence. Sometimes I like to think about that like um, I see a wave swelling. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to want to be ready to be on that wave. Yes. Um, so what do I need to do now to be ready yes. to be on that wave with others, even though I can't surf at all? I can body surf. <laughs> never been able to stand I, up on a board. I feel like you could also describe my journey as a person as trying many, many different things with no sticking power whatsoever. <laughs> and I also at one point decided to become like a bodyboarder. This was in high school, but I was like, I'm going to become a bodyboarder. Really? And I like bought the fins and I bought the bodyboard. That's body- pretty awesome. <laughs> and I was so terrible, but there are so few female bodyboarders yep. that you could say things like, I came fourth at state championships yep. because there were five people in the competition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're looking for areas of scarcity where you can dominate. Correct. I love That's it. The- <laughs> <laughs> I, think I've, like, I think I've got the formula. Where is there a limited amount of literature? <laughs> but I like it. So when did AI sort of come to mind as something that you really wanted to be on the wave of? Because to me that's um, that's kind of been swelling, but I think has really come to a head in the past few years with, you know, what is coming next. And So I actually think artificial intelligence is the one area that I feel like I never wanted to be a part of um, because it has always felt like such a kind of hype area without a lot of meaning behind it. It's very hard to pin down, but it has also been for me this dovetailing of many different experiences that I'd already had. So at the moment you can't talk about artificial intelligence without talking about large data sets. 
You can't talk about artificial intelligence without talking about things like human rights and legal frameworks. Mm. Um, You can't talk about artificial intelligence without talking about the kinds of guardrails, standards, codes of practice. And these are all areas that I've worked deeply in where I would never have called them artificial intelligence. They were just data Data. and human rights law and standards and now just have come together in this kind of underneath the umbrella of AI and it has made me someone that um, is not an expert in one niche area in AI but has a relatively holistic view um, of how a system that we would call artificial intelligence is designed from like go to woe. So uh, I wanted to ask you to just outline your sort of thesis on AI and sort Mm -hmm. of the, um, I know you talk a lot about um, sort of bringing a really human understanding of AI to the table because a Mm -hmm. lot of people are very data focused now they interpret AI. Mm -hmm. They might not have that complete understanding. How do you sort of see it? Um, Maybe we could start with a definition or a kind of where where it's heading and um, and then we can get into a bit more of the the ethics or um, what should people do, the normative stuff around how to play in that space? So I'll start with um, kind of the what is artificial intelligence and the easiest thing I can say is like there is no definition of artificial intelligence. I used to, one of my favourites used to be um, it's whatever a computer can't do yet or it's whatever doesn't have a more (laughs) boring name. So, you know, if you think about... It's a very cool name, isn't it? Yeah, and it usually describes things that currently are science fiction because as soon as they are not science fiction and we can do them, they get a name like search engine natural language processing, image recognition. Uh, They're just tools and tasks that we can undertake with computers. Um, I, I, it means many different things in different contexts, but where I think it's, uh, there is most scrutiny and most necessary scrutiny is where we see systems uh, that are interacting with and influencing humans in ways that are not necessarily objective. So, um, you know, we are starting to use what you might call automated systems or at the Institute, we quite often use the term cyber physical systems, systems that are both uh, uh, connected to the web but embedded in the world, like yeah. they, they are physically around us, um, that despite this uh, kind of uh, divorcing of those systems from people, we always talk about the system or the algorithm um, are designed by humans Humans make all of the choices about what information we're going to use to teach those systems to undertake a task. Humans decide where we deploy them. Mm -hmm. Humans decide what their purpose will be. Um, That's where I'm most interested and and that's where I think you're seeing more and more scrutiny is we're kind of moving past the we've created things that have their own agency and are out of our control Mm to winding that back more to actually, wait, we have done every aspect yeah, of this. Yeah, it's like it's still the people, but it, it's just the people maybe behind the big corporate veils of, you know, the Facebook, Amazon, Google um, and alike. Yep. And we we kind of have this weird thing where we think, oh, it's just the computer deciding and that's yep. kind of a way to bypass maybe some of the ethics of that um that kind of that kind of non discussion about who has the rights to what and who it resides with. Yeah, and it's 
the older, probably not the older I've gotten, you know, like I'm, I'm not that old, but the more that I've worked in the industry, the more I've realized how strategic that can be. Um, I also used to, you know, like 10 years ago, I was working on campaigns, arguing against regulation of the web, arguing against regulation of technology companies, um, because the kind of principles underpinning the design of a lot of our technical systems are kind of concepts like neutrality, Mm. that we are just building platforms. We are just building computers. They are passive objects. They are neutral. Yeah. And I believed that. Like yeah, that was that was yeah. the whole culture. I think a lot of us believed that. Yeah. I mean that 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 at the time before knowing any better, it was sort of like it was believable. Mm. And, and and you kind of had this idea that everything was um designed with good intent and um kind of passively to optimize the human experience yeah. just for your own experience, not for any other purpose. Exactly. Yeah. And um and and not even realizing, and there'll be sociologists and anthropologists listening to this, rolling their eyes, going like, "Of course, this is you know, like, <laughs> like I didn't realize that neutrality was itself a statement, yeah. you know, as in like that choosing to be neutral is itself taking a yeah. position, yeah. and that there is no such there is no such thing as a kind of passive yeah. neutral technology, um, but uh, now, um. I think we still want to assert that in our language, like you will still see in media reports, mm. in congressional testimonies, um, this constant description of technology as something separate and distinct, employed yep. by the platforms yep. themselves. Like, you know, the um, algorithm is determining uh, who is getting served up advertisements on Facebook. And I think it's it's become such an interesting space. I like how you describe that, but maybe before we thought it was a bit of a blank canvas or there's no context, but of course there's always a context mm. to how things are designed. And, um, you know, I think many of us became aware of that um, a little while ago when the ads on Facebook started becoming very customised towards mm-hmm. us and then the, the cookies were sort of following you around the internet on Google and, um, and people started to really ask questions about, you know, the smartphones, you know, where, when we, when we have these interactions, where is this data going? And, um, do we have any say about that? Or is this something that if we want the convenience that we implicitly just surrender without any further kind of, uh, inquiry? Yeah. And I think, uh, we've kind of been, there's two things at play there, which is one is that, um, one of the kind of fundamental objectives behind the design of most computer technology, so our smartphones, the way that we navigate the web, um, the way that we um, use an application is about making the work invisible. Like it's always deliberately designed in such a way that it appears magical mm. and it appears instantaneous and easy and non-human. You never ever really get any friction or glimpse of um, what is actually happening behind the scenes. And now that's created a lot of confusion when you try to talk about what is happening with a smartphone, for example, or like how is data being collected or how does an advertisement work? Because we've never designed technologies in a way that would help people see or get a sense of what is happening under the hood, which is a deliberate choice. Like, mm. And now I think that's kind of biting us in the butt a little bit because people do, you know, I, I, one of the questions that I always get asked 
is about, you know, is Facebook listening to me through the microphone on my phone Mm. uh, because the ads change immediately afterwards? And the answer to this day is like, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't. I'm pretty sure they can't. Probably not, but maybe. Probably not. Yeah. But it's it's a it's a sort of kind of sign of just how confused we are now about. We're, we are so confused. I think everyone is honestly shooting the bed on this. Um, myself, in, oh, I'm actually not. So I think I I want to hear about what you do and you kind of how you approach um, yep. all of this, knowing what you know and having done the research that you do. What are you? How much are you spending your smartphone? You know, are you on all the social media accounts? Do you think about how much time you spend on your devices per day? So um, I'm on all the social media accounts. I probably use my phone most for searching answers to random questions um, like is do people have allergies to watermelon? Or, <laughs> Where is Elstonwick? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and then I said to the taxi driver, take me to Elstonwick. Yeah. And he said, what? <laughs> yeah. Then he had to remember where is Elstonwick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, he, I took out my phone and showed him where Elstonwick. Um I so my from where I come from and the work that I do I inver- I always assume the technology is dumber than its attributed intelligence to yes it is almost always the case that what you think um a technology company has access to or what you think is possible with the information that you shed through your device is only one subset of the kind of complexity that makes up you as a person and the world that you live in. And that actually a lot of the time when you think about the ads that get marketed to us on these platforms, um, the ways that they uh, intervene in our lives, you know, so like if you don't go on Facebook for a while, a thing pops up in your inbox. You haven't been on Facebook yeah. for um, is that actually they're quite dumb. Hmm. Like they you, they do not actually have any grasp of context outside no. of what is happening in that online realm. Or like where they market something to you that you've just purchased. Yes. Like that, that frequently Like a mattress. Like, like I'm like. You should, you should buy this Bilroy wallet. Why? I just bought it. Yeah. Like that's a really dumb recommendation. There are so many instances within which where you could say this is actually a really dumb technology. Yeah. What is worrying to me is that we – um, imbue technologies with intelligence um, in circumstances where we actually should be more sceptical. Yes. And that sometimes a decision made by a dumb system move beyond um, marketing a wallet to you that uh, you've actually already purchased. Mm. A dumb mistake by a system goes a lot further than um, an incorrect advertisement to things like a plane falling out of the sky. Yeah. Like we 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 are not sceptical enough, and I don't mean to um, that we should be negative about technology, but we should take this healthy scepticism as we do with so many other forms of human manufacturing. It is human manufacturing. Yeah. So. It's, it's sort of like humans making decisions or approximate guesses about yeah. what um, they will find useful from the technology. Yes. It's sort of like how I use a Google Pixel phone yep. and the latest Pixel 4 that they've just brought out has radar and sonar mm-hmm. in it. I don't know how Google made the decision that I would want radar or sonar on my phone or that I somehow would like to make a gesture over my phone but not just press the phone. Mm-hmm. But maybe that will be the norm in three years, like the people just won't touch their phone. But it's, it just sort of seems like a ridiculously over-technological feature to throw into a new device. It is. I was just talking to someone this morning, mm-hmm. though, about sometimes changes like that become the norm and you forget 
that they were ever strange. Like I yeah. remember the outrage when um, the iPhone came out requiring the th- fingerprint ID, oh, yeah. you know, that you could just unlock <laughs> yeah. it with your fingerprint. Yeah. And now that is normal. Yeah. And then it was where you can open an iPhone with your face. Yeah. And now, Do you think that's weird or you think that's good? When I first heard – so I don't know – it's not that whether I think it's weird or good. I can see that it is efficient for some people. Yep. I worry about the way in which then it normalizes facial recognition. And the iPhone does not capture your face – in the cloud, like it is not um, using that for any other purpose, but it is part of a set of technologies that have made it much more normal to encounter scans of your face in different contexts. And you can see how that becomes a slippery slope. Like you hear it come up in media interviews, you know, um, people should be okay with us using facial recognition in a criminal justice context because they use it on their phones every day. Yep. It's like they're very different purposes. Yeah, entirely. And you, all you have to do is really look at what's happening in China and yes. uh, you sometimes see the bottom of that slippery slope maybe. Yes, <laughs> and yet, yeah, they, they normalise. We become used to things. We've become used to searching for the answer to any question on a device mm. in our pocket where, you know, when I was in high school there weren't smartphones yeah. and you just um, used a MacBook when you got in your car. And sometimes the MacBook was older than the suburb you were in yeah. and you just drove around. I used to have this, um, I used to use this thing called whereis.com. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Where no. you type in the address before you went out on using like dial up, you know, 50 yeah. K modem or whatever, and then you print off the nice. instructions. Yes. And then, so you just have to follow those instructions. Excellent. <laughs> Very old school. That is supremely that, old school. That is great. So I somehow <laughs> skipped. I, I I must have skipped that because I remember I had the map book in my car, and I remember being in suburbs in Perth where the map would be grey, <laughs> yeah. but there were clearly streets around, and thinking, okay, uh, I'm just going to drive around streets. Now I don't think I would even have the confidence mm. to keep driving because I'm so lost without GPS telling me. Yeah. S- situating me I'm in a so place. Lost. I'm so lost that sometimes I can be 40 metres away from where I next oh. need to be and I'll still look it up. Yeah. Like I don't trust myself enough to oh. get there. If you dropped me in the wild, like maybe in the bushlands or wherever and said, go to this place, I would. I would. I don't know what I, did, what I would do. I'd just scream. There's actually a whole, and it's not the topic of this podcast, mm. but if people are interested, there's a whole kind of series of, uh, of, series of discussions around death by GPS, which is people <laughs> who make terrible decisions in reliance on GPS, like, you know, driving down unsealed roads in Death Valley yeah. because the GPS tells them to. I have heard of to, this, actually. Um, I, I did it today on my way here <laughs> where I was trying to get to a shop in the Melbourne CBD where I was like, I've been here before. I'm sure it's 40 metres in this like, direction. And no, Ellen, you're probably wrong. You should trust the phone. Yeah, so I went in a, like, I took a square. I went, <laughs> you know, I walked for a, probably about 600 metres and it took me back to where I started and I realised, oh, it doesn't know that it's inside an arcade. <laughs> Yeah, that's a classic mistake. Oh, it's, it's inside just, another complex, so yep. like it just can't figure that out. No. I have a few more things I want to touch yes. on. Uh, the first thing is the attention economy and sort of how um, data or data gathering in these platforms sort of lust for your attention. And I mean, it's a sort of constant competition for your eyeballs. Um, how does that kind of play into your perception of um, just human living and experience and how that's evolving? So I think... On the one hand, you can feel that we are kind of 
at a tipping point or just past a tipping point in the attention economy, as in you can see playing out in real time the consequences of a set of platforms and a set of experience that prioritise the loudest voices and the voices that say the most outrageous things. And you can see the ways in which those can be manipulated. Um, And that is very worrying. I think five years ago, we were talking about the attention economy in a much more um, linear way, like people are spending too much time on their devices uh they have too much screen time how can we give parents advice Mm. on their children watching screens which is still all concerning and people talk about Mm. but we're now kind of seeing the um implications of that attention economy in how it manipulates the ways that we talk to each other and it manipulates the way that we report the news and it manipulates the way um democracies uh, are run. Well, it's like um, everything's more extreme because, um, you know, your attention is such a finite resource and so t- to keep you on, yep. like, you know, people react more strongly to more, yep. you know, uh, divisive. And um, we and, and so much of that, again, is not like it, it is – It's not. I, I'm sure it was foreseeable. I'm sure there were people who were critiquing the design of platforms and saying this is what's going to happen. Yep. And you can see now clearly that it is not – unwindable, but it would force us to make very hard choices about um, the ways we want to interact with each other online. So, for example, the way that um, uh, media outlets online have been forced to change their ways of delivering journalism are in response to that erosion of an advertising model and that quantification of an advertising model, which sees you essentially having to... um, uh, pr- provide a sense of your click rates, mm. the eyeballs on articles that this can be measured and that the more incendiary your headlines are, the more strange your content is, the more clicks you'll get. Um, and, and that has become more cynical over time. We've stopped talking about clickbait in a like, oh, we've got to write a listicle and it will be clickbait mm. through now to... Um, Here are the top 10 horror films you must, must see from 2019. Yeah, that was like innocent clickbait yeah. and we all talked about clickbait being, oh, you know, we've just got to write an article about how bad millennials are. <laughs> yeah. But to now like we are going to deliberately mislead you as to the intent of this article yeah. with a headline that will make you click on it but we've also created um, a design of the page for you so that, like this one drives me wild, you only see a paragraph and then if you want to read more, you click more. Like yeah. as in we have yeah. in the design of our web platforms made it harder and harder for people to actually just pay attention. Yes. Like we, we've basically trained people to only want a paragraph, to only want 240 characters mm. where you know what I quite like? That like the the extremeness of that for me is like how some sites, if you can't even be bothered reading it, um, it'll just read it to you. Like you can press a button and it'll just read the article to you. So <laughs> it's I, magic. It's so funny because um, I remember a project that we were working on last year talking about what is faster, yep. reading an article or listening to someone yep. read the article to you. Yep. And I always skip the reading, mm. like skip the person reading it to me because I'm like, oh, I can skim this article yeah, in yeah. 30 seconds. I agree. If I, 
I don't, um, I don't use that feature, but I think it's interesting that people would use that feature. I and could see I also, how someone with a visual impairment might uh, use it. Sure, for sure, for yep. sure. So that 100% is legit. I was just thinking more about like the, the typical consumer yeah. who maybe um, doesn't have any kind of limitation might be using that or not. Yeah. Makes me wonder, Do you are you an audio book listener or do you prefer to read books? I prefer to read books, but that's, I think, only because I don't really have opportunities during the day to listen to podcasts. So I live in Canberra, so it takes me, you know, if I drive, five minutes to get to work. It's too quick. It's too quick. Yeah. Um, you need if, to move out to the suburbs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, if I cycle, then I'm too scared to listen to anything. In yeah. case, I'm like not very good at cycling, so yeah. I need to focus on the road. So I don't really have time. I listen to podcasts. Um, you, yeah, When I am listening to things, it's usually podcasts and I'm listening to them whilst I'm cooking or when we get up in the morning. Um, I think I find podcasts easier to listen to because it's a conversation yeah. for 45 minutes yeah. or 20 minutes or whatever it is. Whereas usually an audio book, it's like, what did they talk about I yesterday? I know. It's like, it's really hard because there is some really high quality content out there and I'm starting to lean into audio books a bit, but they're like eight or 10 hours. Yeah. And I'm like, how can I remember when I listen? Like when, what's the longest chunk that I'll have to listen to and how can I then come back to that? Yeah chunks so there's also the comprehension problem which is that i don't think you retain anything from audiobooks even though it's a very pleasurable experience i still have that problem with some print books to be honest like <laughs> I, I still read every night before i go to bed and honestly at least half the nights i start by reading the 10 pages from the night before being like where was i yeah what was i thinking <laughs> so with this sort of outrage culture that we've, we're kind of getting towards. I mean, what is the natural conclusion of that if there is one? Or I mean, because it makes, it makes things like Twitter and Facebook and even LinkedIn to some degree and other platforms fairly thorny and, I mean, I think less pleasant because people are not really saying things that, that have a, a purpose that's useful. It's more like um, sometimes I, when I go on Twitter, and this is why I'm not on as much anymore, I think it's like a bunch of people if, going out in the street and just yelling, here's my opinion, and I'm going to yeah. yell it out as loud as possible. And I'm going to try and frame it so that um, if there are 100 people yelling, mine is the opinion that gets the most attention. So it makes me really sad that you say that because whilst I agree about Twitter, like I also found so many of my friends on Twitter. So yeah. I've been on Twitter for a decade, and it didn't used to be like that. Yeah. It used to be – communities of people that shared similar interests and you could cross geographical boundaries and kind of reach into communities virtually that you wouldn't otherwise have encountered. But again, I do think it's a consequence of the design decisions we have made about the platform sure. that deliberately rewards the attention. Now yeah. on Twitter, it is definitely the case that you are rewarded for having the loudest voice yeah. and the most extreme views because the platform is designed to elevate like explicitly like, you know you will see the amount of retweets and the amount of likes anything gets mm. which elevates it we look at things like people's scores so you can you know look up influencers scores yeah. to see how much attention they oh, are man. getting the influencing space is whole another kettle yep. of fish right you have now the like deliberate weaponization of those spaces by disinformation campaigns by state actors like knowing that you can game these systems and kind of um increase that uh extreme kind of um, frenzy. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just mind-bending the stuff about Russia's influence in the US elections. And-, and and it's, you know, I remember talking to someone last year about um, the 
the massacre in it was Christchurch, wasn't it? Um, of the two synagogues, mm-hmm. not synagogues, mm-hmm. um, the, mo- the mosques, the mosques yeah. um, where he live streamed the shootings mm-hmm. on Facebook, and there was a lot of discussion around like, well, how do we prevent that? Yeah, how do we stop that from happening? Yeah, and as though that is that it can't be stopped, you know, like how do we stop people Mm. from doing that? Mm. And yet there was a time when you could not upload video to a platform um, and have it appear immediately. And at first that was like because it was technically very, very difficult to do. We did not have sufficient bandwidth or computing power to do Mm. it. But we have also made a decision to allow scale and speed, like scale and speed are our first order priorities on the web. So introducing friction like the need for a human review of any yeah. video content published to a major platform mm-hmm. would introduce massive friction yeah. and massive overheads and Imagine slow- the uproar on the YouTube influencer completely yeah. slow things down entirely. It is an option that exists and we kind of, like I'm not, I definitely am not advocating that option because there are many valid and valuable purposes we kind of prioritize scale and speed for, but that we kind of forget that we did the bad stuff too. Like that if scale and speed is our defining kind of set of values, that will be weaponized for bad. Yeah in the same way that it will be used for good. And I think you have to take the bad with the good. I mean, I don't see how that's an avoidable thing. I mean, and and also it comes down to sort of the economics of these enormous corporations. Is it feasible or even reasonable for us to expect them to employ enormous tens of thousands of moderators, given that the amount of people on these platforms are generating more and more every day? And there's 1.5 billion people or something on Facebook or more. Um, So I- How do you do that? I become quite philosophical about it because we in other spaces have just said, no, this is not the way things are going to work Mm -hmm. anymore. Like we make um, public health decisions that can change the scale of a problem in ways that are good and bad. It's always good versus bad. There's never a this is just the right thing to do in this Mm. situation. I think of things like how we have over time, over the last 100 years, completely changed the public's relationship with pharmaceuticals. Where it used to be that you could get any manner of drug over the counter from unregulated, unlicensed providers that could be selling you anything from rat poison to Mm. aspirin. And the influence of the medical profession was very limited And that would have been efficient. Um, In some contexts now we have regulated so much against over-the-counter pharmaceuticals because of this fear of how people will misuse them. Mm. But, like, we have made decisions in other contexts that introducing friction is more important than facilitating scale. Uh, I think the analogy is very strong, but apart from where one can be government-led, whereas Mm. the the private enterprise in the US where a lot of these companies are kind of running the show, has moved so far away from sort of um, a normalised central response that it's quite hard to sort of see who's going to have the, given their size and sort of clout and power, who's going to have the, I know that, um, you know, Warren talks a lot about it in, mm-hmm. in her campaigning, but she's, she's you know, might not even be the nominee. But, um, you know, who's, who's going who's gonna to make that call that we need to bring things in and how would it even happen? I, 
I feel as though in a hundred years' time, I wonder if we'll feel as though they're as all dominating as they are, yeah. whether something else. You know, I remember when we talked about Microsoft yeah. being the most dangerous actor. Um, Did we? Was that a thing? Uh, in the 1990s, they were the yeah. worst company, like, you know, as in they were seen as the global monopoly mm. on desktop. Yeah. Um, kind of software. They were the subject of all of these huge antitrust litigations. Um, they were kind of the bad boys of tech for a solid 10 to 15 years, probably they'd say 20, like it was a long time. Um, and then these kind of web-based platforms, online platforms kind of grew in scale and influence. I don't know what will come next, but if there's something that particularly I've learned since joining the 3A Institute, it's that um, there is always a history and history is um, – there is very – in one sense, on a meta level, our concerns remain the same. So I've been reading a lot about cybernetics recently where this kind of continuous concern about the relationship between humans and machines and to what extent machines influence us and what is a smart machine has been a discussion going on for a century. Yeah. But what people thought were the biggest risks and were like all engulfing risks as in this is going to destroy us, This it's mm. not possible to solve this problem, mm-hmm. then 20, 30 years later were just no longer, like they'd either um, been overtaken by some new wave of technologies or like we have as a global community, I don't think we're necessarily in the right headspace to do it now, but we have as a global community come together in a wide range of areas mm. to stamp out or to address different issues that cross state borders. You know, we you look at some of our industries that are essentially international in nature. Aviation is a great example. Yeah. Um, we're going to, I assume, you know, you can feel this bubbling up around climate change yes. that – there's going to be a point here where we kind of really embrace international cooperation in a much more um, active way. So I think you got to really like that's a really good point to make, and I think it's it's timely to touch upon climate change as well. And I suppose when I think about it, I mean we have a lot of failed agreements, we've had a lot of failed efforts to sort of get on board um, together as an international community and take concrete steps. I think um, what what maybe is a good way to think about it is how decisions are made and what's going to be the predominant lever. Is it going to be data or is it going to be um, a human story in a lot of cases? I know that maybe in, in your area of work it's, it's previously been um, a lot of probabilistic thinking, a lot of sort of data-driven decision-making, but we, we sort of spoke earlier about how now more and more it's, it's the human story that's driving change. And I'm sort of thinking a bit about Greta Thornburg here and her you know, massive influence um, in a very short time in propelling the debate forward. Does it take the sort of human stories uh, and, and real human raw emotion and passion um, to move things where maybe data hasn't before? I think you used a really good phrase when we were talking about this before the podcast of you have these moments, I think you said this, of um, that that – bring together a number of other projects and points and pieces of Mm. evidence that up until that point had just been pieces of evidence. And I think she becomes a catalyst for um, 
you know, we're doing this right now with the bushfires where everyone is pointing back to, well, there was this report in 2008 Mm. that said this would happen in 2020. And there was this report from the World Economic Forum in 2012 that said this is where we would be. Um, But we do not act on data. We do not act on scientific reports. Um, It is usually that there is, like we, we, um, desire them and we want them as mm, an evidence mm. base, but usually they form part of an evidence base. Yeah. They're like part of the basis on which you make a decision and you may choose not to make the right decision. Correct. And it's usually when something has become so captured the public consciousness. Mm. And, and, and sometimes like data is usually part of doing that. Like there is a reason we quite often talk about the bushfires, for example, Mm. to just continue with this example, Mm. that we talk about the bushfires in terms of the size of countries. That is a data visualization when we say the fires have burnt through um, space the size of Belgium. So um, absolutely. Did I tell you that I was just in Chile? I just flew back from Chile and I was just, as I got back, somebody sent me an article saying, did you see the smog from the Australian bushfires in Chile? And apparently it had floated over yeah. the Pacific and was on, in Chile. So yeah. I had, in fact, seen that smoke. And it's just if you could have like a more kind of um, – that for me is like a, a story or example yeah. where it's it's a lot more powerful than if you told me something like, you know, um, 97% of people agree that climate change is a yeah. thing. Yeah. It's like sometimes it's just finding the right data yeah. to tell a story. Um, and understanding your audience. And I also think something that's changed over the last 10 to 15 years is because this online space has moved from being a space of trusted communication to one of complete distrust, as in, um, you know, I don't know about you, but like I, when I was in high school, was in a lot of web forums. Yeah, and, I love that stuff. Yeah, and and there was never ever any sense of like who could I be talking to? Yeah, um, what is their ob- objective? Um, what is the kind of forum moderator doing with my information? And and they just weren't doing anything. They were kind of like fun, weird. I was in like a his dark materials fantasy forum mm. and a poetry forum, and none of them exist anymore. But. There was they probably very... do on Reddit. You love Reddit if you like that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I just got into Reddit, and I think it's the best of all the platforms because all can that also old be the school, worst, yeah, but... <laughs> probably, but all that old school stuff oh that you're like reminiscing on that is in Reddit. Uh, so when we talked about what my Google search history would be at the yeah. moment, yesterday I was trying to remember what um, the aliens ate in Animorphs. In what? Animorphs. Do you What's remember? Animorphs? It was like a really popular teen that is, that... fiction series that was then turned into a television series okay. on the ABC. Now you've got me interested. Was there Google results on that? For, from Reddit. Oh, my God. Amazing. And like quite subreddits. detailed yep. subreddits yep. about the Andalites eating grass through their hooves. Yep. Yep. And I was like, yes, I remember. <laughs> um, but anyway, no, I think, but what's happened now, which I think also affects our reliance on data and facts is because now you can be whatever you want to be online and you can say whatever you want. And from every level down, we, if we don't like something, we just say that's false. Yep. That's fake information. We manipulate information that now people can just assume that anything that they're presented with has an agenda, which is true in a sense, but, you know, we assume now in a negative, like, yeah. oh, it's coming from the left or the right. Yep. 
um, and it's deliberately designed to manipulate me. And so we just do not trust facts. Oh, I'm or, 100% or evidence. with you. I'm actually quite scared to share anything online anymore because I'm not sure, like, A, whether the source is reliable and whether it's you know, 100% factual. B, I'm not sure how I'm going to be judged in that context of that yep. time for posting something. And C, it just makes me too nervous overall to, to bother. So it's like it's interesting. I used to post a lot of stuff, but I've stepped back from that world a bit, and um, am much more uh, interested in sort of having these conversations as my main medium. Because here, the context is the podcast and the conversation. It can't be sort of taken out of no. context. Um, when and you, there's a record of it. You know, like record. if someone tries to quote me out of context, I can mm. say, you know, yeah, here is the podcast yeah. that it was in. Yeah. Um, but it's it's something that is one your description of your behavior changes mm. is part of what makes me think that things will change over time in the way that we yeah. use these platforms. I think they have to a little bit because they're not really working optimally, and I think that I I hear a lot of anxiety from different people about using platforms, and you know, um, people even with their phones like people who have a google phone are really concerned about you know google sharing all their data the wrong way apple it's the same thing but you have to use one of them so mm-hmm. it's like what are you going to do you're going to go into a cave and just use a nokia 3210 it's well you've got to think about these business models were built on us sharing as much information Correct. about ourselves yeah. as they could encourage us to share mm. because we trusted them yeah. the more that we draw back from platforms the less valuable those platforms become as an advertising base. Yes, like yep. I wonder if one of the routes will go down, or at least this is my one of the routes we should go down, is if you start to require platform companies to be audited on things like their active user base, yep. the behaviours of that active user base in terms of like how frequently are they online, mm. what do they click on, how do they interact. Because to go back to your comments about Facebook at yep. the beginning in advertising, I actually think, and you see this in survey results, but Facebook does not actually reveal real user numbers and behaviors yeah. that the usage of Facebook is declining. Oh, it's going down the toilet. And it's, you can hear that in um, in like popular opinion though. Like mm-hmm. uh, people who are big influencers will tell you that they, they don't use Facebook. It's all Instagram now. Yeah. But, but that scares me because I think that Instagram is, um, it's it's like, it's really like the cheeseburgers and McDonald's of the information economy. It's just pictures and words. Yeah. Like you're not really learning anything. You're just and, envying something else. Oh, and again, we've started to approach Instagram from this awareness of just how fake it is. Yeah. Like um, I, one of my favorite essays is Gia Tolentino, um, who writes for the New Yorker mm-hmm. and the New York Times. And she writes a lot of great long form pieces about, um, the way that we behave online. And she introduced me to the Instagram face, which was <laughs> this whole – I mean, the, the essay was called the Instagram face, mm. but it's this whole industry of um, tools and techniques for manipulating the photos that we put up on Instagram. And I obviously knew about, like, filters yeah. and, you know, yes, that we spend a lot of time choosing the right photo, et cetera, but I did not know about the existence of things like Facetune. Oh, man, I, I don't know what that is, but it sounds awful. Facetune, I downloaded it because I was so curious. <laughs> so, like, Facetune is essentially a Photoshopping app that is incredibly easy to use. So for every photo that you take of yourself, you can then just Photoshop it. So you smooth out the wrinkles, smooth out um, any lumps and bumps. You can make your eyes bigger. You can make your jaw thinner, but it all looks incredibly professional. Like no, unless you really know what to look for, that is just um, 
This stuff scares me so much. I tell you why. Firstly, because um, they're all FOMO generators. So all these platforms, the people who are writing on them and you're looking at them and you're thinking, oh, they're, they're, they're all designed to sort of say, this is how awesome what's going on in my life is right now. Um, what's up with you? Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, you know, your turn. And that makes me so anxious to sort of see all that traffic. The other thing is that while you're doing that, you are not really present in the moment that you could be enjoying. So that's my other fear is like not only are you like portraying this um, this like reflection of the situation, but you're not in the situation that you could be in. I can't remember who was telling me this recently, but it totally like scared the crap out of yeah. me, which was it was um, – oh, who was it that was talking to me about a study done with Instagram users where they um, – it was a trial within which they took a group of Instagram influencers on holidays and they had half of them not take a single photograph or upload anything to social media the whole time and then they had the other half uploading and Instagramming as they otherwise would to see and then after their holidays they surveyed them about how they enjoyed their holidays and I before they told me this was like well of course the people who didn't use Instagram and social media had a better time Mm. but it was the opposite the ones who had not been able to upload to Instagram had FOMO. Yeah. They felt like people wouldn't know that you know they were why? enjoying their because holiday. the scary thing is the platform has made them see the reality as Instagram opportunities. So so the platform is becoming part of their real world. Oh, like um, I in, was in Perth over Christmas and I was sitting at a table next to a friend who's an interior architect and she had just gone to the Milan Design Fair yeah. and said – now it's about designing Instagrammable interiors. And there's literally booths in the design fair about Instagrammable features of a house. And similarly, I spoke to a tour guide recently of like, it's not Contiki tours, but, you know, tours yeah. like Contiki. And yep. I said, well, how have they changed since we were 18 years old and yeah. going on tours? And she said, two things. It's all about Instagrammable moments so you take them to places that photograph well and this one makes me feel a slightly a little bit better um a lot of young people care about um climate conscious experiences as well but she was like it's all about taking people to (laughs) places that photograph well but here's my question do they care about the eco-conscious experience because it's going to go on instagram or do they actually care about the eco-conscious experience could you? Is there any way to separate that out? God, <laughs> like, on a, like I like to think that to we're cynical. not. No, I like to think that we're not so one-dimensional yeah. yet yeah, that know, you know, know it's like the only thing that exists is Instagram. But My anyway. cynicism is destroying me. But um, anyway, well, let's end on a few questions that I'm really yes. curious about. One: Do you watch Black Mirror? So no. I watched the first series, but I, you probably heard a lot of this throughout my interview that like, I really cling to optimism and hope. And I found Black Mirror um, quite often just too dystopian and, and um, assumes the worst of us. Absolutely. Um, So I couldn't watch it after that. Like I thought there's been a couple of really clever episodes that I thought really nailed our human content, like Mm. our human, uh, the one where uh, it's the consequence of being able to record every moment about your life and the way that that changed relationships between couples. I thought that was a great episode because Mm -hmm. it wasn't about the technology being evil per se. It was about us being complex Sometimes good, sometimes bad people. But yeah, a lot of the episodes are just too dystopian for me. So that was the first one. Mm-hmm. The second one is what are you most excited about um, in your space over the next um, year or two that you know maybe AI will do or maybe research that you're doing um, at the 3A Institute? So the 3A Institute uh, is doing a lot of work at the moment around topics like 
um, assurance. So like how do you assure the reliability or robustness of an automated system or an artificially intelligent system and also doing a lot around kind of the interfaces between humans and systems? Like do we know they're there? How do they appear before us? And I find those spaces at the moment really exciting and there's a lot of fascinating work being done around things like um, how would you – um, make clear to someone that a decision is being made by an algorithm mm. or how would you make clear the presence of a computer or um, what are the standards of practice that we would put on a team of engineers designing um, a smart fridge, for yeah. example. And that is very um, – and what I like about the 3A and Genevieve's approach is she's – so 3A's mission is to build a new branch of engineering. Mm-hmm. It's not kind of let's do think pieces around these topics. She's very much focused on, okay, in an applied context, what are the skills that these new engineers will have to have to actually start designing technologies differently? And the th- I'll give you an example which kind of might conclude this, what I'm excited about Um I joined the Institute in uh, October this year. So I'm new. I've only been there for kind of three months now. And I sat in on their the tech demos from their first master's cohort. This um, 16 students, I think it's 16, from very disparate backgrounds. There were um, theatre makers, computer scientists, economists, mm-hmm. um, huge range of people who all – learned how to design, they learned the basics of software design, data architecture, some um, hardware skills, they did some welding, some 3D printing, and they also did a lot of like critical thinking and um, kind of uh, systems theory, uh, like basically a very holistic uh, kind of education. And they had to build smart systems. So one team did a smart pillbox, another team did a kind of cognitive cubes game for children using image recognition. Um, But the way that they did their lab demos in their kind of end of semester project was unlike any lab demo I've seen. And I've sat in now, you know, hundreds of Mm. demos of new technology products where every demo – not only did they describe the technical choices that they'd made about the design in terms of the trade-offs that that had forced them to make and the way that that would change its relationship with a person. So they would say, you know, okay, well, in order to make this functionality work, we had to um, use a cloud infrastructure, which makes the data more insecure. Mm. And we've got to think about how we communicate that to a person. Or when we realized we were designing this for the elderly, we realized a digital looking screen wouldn't work and we needed to make something that looked like a photo, a, a picture on a wall. Um, But then they all also talked about how they would decommission that technology product um, from the moment they started the demo. So part of their presentation would be, and when it exhibits these characteristics, this is when we'll take it offline, or this is how we will decommission it. Like as in, this is how we will wind it down. This is what we'll do with the data. This is what we'll do with the hardware. And I've never seen that um, cultural approach. That is really interesting. So like the staged um, nature of it and diving back in at different points. Yeah, this kind of sense of um, that these things are holistic, like that 
there is always this interplay between the choices that you make about the thing you're building and then how people will use it and what you didn't expect and what you have to check back in with. That is actually not at all the way that we design software. We are kind of at the moment as a culture all about disruption. And usually if you don't like something, you don't fix that thing, you start again. Mm. You know, and we joke about it all the time with like Elon Musk saying like, we need a hyperloop because public transport is bad. And you're like, well, you, we, we could pay, we could fund better public <laughs> yeah, transport. Yeah, we don't yeah. have to like build a futuristic <laughs> hyperloop. Um, but that excited me so much because I could see, unfortunately, that culture doesn't scale easily from one master's cohort in one school. But I could see how if we keep, taking these applied approaches in an institute like 3AI, we could just seed different practices. Mm. And who knows, in 20 years' time, 30 years' time, have now have more awareness of the difference between a responsible engineering practice and one that is careless or unaware of its place in the world. That's really well put. Um, I want to end by asking you, yep. um, what should people read? Obviously, they should read your book, and we're going to pop that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, are there other things you're reading you think people would like, and who should people follow that are, are kind of um, people that you're following at the moment who are doing interesting things? Okay, so books that I'm um, really enjoying at the moment. So um, The Rise of the Machines is one that I referenced earlier in the podcast. Genevieve Bell gave us all copies before Christmas, and now that I'm reading it, I'm totally enthralled. It's like the history of cybernetics, which sounds wild and wacky. I'd never heard the term before, but it's really just the history of kind of computing and philosophies around computing. And it's just a really well-written book. Um, His name, you'll have to add to the show notes because I've forgotten what it is. Um, That's really interesting. Uh, I'm also very much enjoying completely separately the Gia Tolentino book, um, Trick Mirror, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for people who enjoy essays She's just such a phenomenal writer and so much of it is about this, the things that we're discussing now, how the web is changing our relationships with each other. People that you should follow online, well, she definitely follow Genevieve Bell. I've talked about her so many times. Um, There are so many excellent uh, ethical, uh, deeply authoritative, um, empathetic people online. Some of the ones that I always find useful um, are people like there's a professor at Princeton called Arvind Narayanan. He always says really fascinating. He's a machine learning researcher who just also tweets really eloquently about privacy and human rights. Um, Kate Crawford, uh, Frank Pasquale. There's a few Australians that I really love. So to shout out to at least just one Australian um Dr. Luke Oakton Rayner at University of Adelaide. He's probably sick of me talking about him. And I, I'm sure he's actually not. No, no. Like <laughs> he, I talk about him in the book as well. But again, he is someone who he'd be very, he'd be a, of a relatively small handful of researchers in that he's both a trained radiologist and a machine learning researcher working on diagnostics in AI. That is a dope combination, if you don't mind me saying. That's super interesting. So interesting. And he, again, just writes really eloquent, authoritative, useful blogs about this is what is possible at the moment with the technologies that we have, and this is where we get into trouble, and just very pragmatic and very practical, but also really um, 
balances both a sense of what people are concerned about and and what the kind of policy framing might be, as well as just a deep technical knowledge of how a system works. So if there was one that I'd be like, just really open my eyes to some of the um, ways in which we use image recognition. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Luke Oakden Rayner is on Twitter and he has a blog and he's fascinating. Awesome. So um, people should also follow you on Twitter because oh, I yes. think you're prolific and you've got some great <laughs> not stuff. Not as prolific there. anymore, but I do tweet a little bit. Yes. And you, I think you follow great people. So you strike me as somebody who not is just prolific, but follows good yeah, people definitely. in this space. Definitely. So what's your handle? Uh, my handle is just at Ellen Broad. Mm-hmm. So you shouldn't have too much difficulty finding and your me. ellenbroad.com is your yep. website. Mm-hmm. And if people want to touch base, can they connect with you, shoot you a message or email? Yeah, so there's um, – when you go through the website, you can contact me that way. I'm also – don't contact me on LinkedIn. I mean, I have a LinkedIn, <laughs> but – I've never had Mike somebody do I, that before, like explicitly do not. Well, <laughs> Mike and I were talking about before the podcast, like I really am clueless about the etiquette of LinkedIn. Yeah. So, A, I check it don't very – Don't worry, everyone is – I check it very infrequently and then I never know how to respond to the inbox messages that just say, it would be great to connect sometime. Yeah. Hey, and nothing it, it else. It looks like we have many contacts in common. Should we connect? Yes. And, and, I, and I genuinely, um, I don't know if <laughs> no, I'm... No, should not. Well, I don't even know if I'm supposed to say yeah. anything. Is that just the polite first interaction? It's just... This could be its own study, like how to respond to randoms on LinkedIn. Yep. Whereas Twitter DMs, for example, I respond mm, to because mm. usually they're like quite direct, you know, it's like have a particular, you know, yeah. oh, I want to talk to you about this particular thing. Whereas, yeah, LinkedIn, I just don't check. And then even when I do see messages, there's this veil of do they actually want to connect <laughs> yeah. with me? Like yeah. what? what is the context? I'll tell you a trick. If they write you, if they don't write you a custom uh, message, just cancel it out immediately. Really? If they do write you a custom message, check whether it's scripted. If it's scripted and like it's one that they send to everyone, so we have these people in common we should connect, ignore. If it's something that they actually write to you and they would like to connect with you for a reason, accept. If you so so you only accept connections if they seem like valid uh, if they've got over 150 um, in common and they're in the similar field, yes. Oh, I didn't even uh, know any of this. I just like accept, accept, yeah. accept because I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, no, that's risky, man. That's risky. <sighs> like that's, that's, that's way too risky. You need to have like an algorithm for it because I otherwise mean, it's chaos. Oh, my um, gosh. I didn't – I just – it just is a baffling interface to me, and I'm sure now yeah. there are probably like tips for people. You and I should have a sit down. Where you teach me how to Twitter <laughs> properly, and I'll show you LinkedIn how like that. I almost don't want any more platforms, <laughs> yeah. and I know you would be the same. You're like, yeah. I want to understand Twitter better, and I'm like, yeah. no, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on. It's been an awesome chat today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 